Good morning, Citizens Church. I am so glad to be here with you worshiping today. It is nice uh, to just be in the city. The valley, I've been told, is the Staten Island of Los Angeles, <laughs> which hurts because I'm definitely more of a downtown kind of guy. Uh, so it's just been sweet to be in the city this morning with you all. Um, thank you, Jason, for such a sweet introduction. Um, yeah, just thankful for you, thankful for this opportunity. Um, so let's, let's dive right in. You've been going through this series on community for the last couple of weeks, and uh, I got to listen um, from home and have just been really blessed by all the messages. Just to kind of recap where you've been, three weeks ago you were brought through Psalm 133, which is this psalm of ascent that God's people would sing as they were going into Israel for the high holy days, and the idea of how good it is for brothers and sisters to dwell together in unity. That, um, you know, we can want to break from our kids, but as soon as we're apart from them for any extended period of time, you know, we long for their presence. We miss them. And then two weeks ago, you were brought to Genesis 1 and the idea that we have a God, one God in three persons who creates all that we see in the beauty of the creative act. And you were called to be reminded that as a community, you're called to create together something that we can't create as individuals. And then last week, this beautiful reflection on 1 John, that we serve a God of love, who out of love made us and has called us to love one another as he loves us. And so with that in mind, this morning I want to think about what all of those truths mean for us leaving this place today in Los Angeles. What does it mean that as we gather as brothers and sisters here as a community formed by God, that he sends us out into the city? Your church's vision statement is to be a city within a city, a community transformed by the gospel, living out the life of heaven here and now. And so before we dive in, just look around for a moment to your right and to your left. These are your brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the community that God has called you to. And through this family, he is sending you out into this city to impact it with the love of God. And so today we're going to look at this really well-known story that Jesus told during his ministry and see what it means for us living out our faith in Los Angeles today. So let me pray for us, and then I'll read the text. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to worship here at Citizens. I thank you for gathering these brothers and sisters to know you more. I pray that through this story that your son told that's so familiar, we would see these truths with new eyes. Would your spirit work in and through us to know how loved we are, to go out and love others as you have loved us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to be reading from Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. 
But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw me, pass by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is God's word, and all God's people say, Amen. Kansas City, honor student Ralph Yarl, 16 years old, mixes up the address when he's going to pick up his twin brothers on a Thursday night. He shows up at the home of Andrew Lester, who's 84. Without saying a word, Lester fired twice, striking Ralph in the head and in the arm. The homeowner yelled, don't come around here. New York. Kaylin Gillis, 20 years old, was traveling through Hebron with three people Saturday night when the group turned into a property that was not the friend's house they were looking for. Authorities said they were met with gunfire in the driveway. Texas, a man shot two cheerleaders in a supermarket parking lot after one of them got into his car thinking it was her own. Heather Ross said she got out of her friend's car and into a vehicle she thought was hers, but there was a stranger in the passenger seat. So she panicked, got back into her friend's car, but the man got out of his vehicle and approached. She tried to apologize, but the man threw up his hands, pulled out a gun, and opened fire. North Carolina, a man shot a six-year-old and her parents Tuesday night. Neighbor Jonathan Robertson said that before the attack, some children went to retrieve a basketball that had rolled into the yard. The owner went into his home, came back with a gun, and began shooting as parents frantically tried to get their kids to safety. All of these events took place in the span of six days in April of this year. People coming into contact with strangers, and the first response was to attack. We are living in a crisis of community in our country. Increased isolation, increased hostility. Porches were once the place where you invited people into your home, where you gathered and spent time with your neighbors, and they're now the final barrier between you and potential enemies. We live in L.A., and as Jason said, one of the loneliest cities in an increasingly lonely country. It used to be the cities were the places where you're lonely because you're surrounded by people, right? And it's so hard to make meaningful connections. But that has extended now way beyond Los Angeles and New York and large cities. It's all over. What does it mean to be a Christian in this time and place? 
When Jesus was asked, how shall we live? He said it was summed up in two commandments. Love God and love your neighbor. And then he told this story this morning. We're told this expert of the law comes up to Jesus trying to justify himself. Specifically with regards to the question, who is my neighbor? And the question beneath the question is basically, what are the boundaries that define who I'm to love as myself? Jesus, who can I exclude? And Jesus tells this story. A man is attacked on his way to Jericho. Now, Jericho is 15 miles northeast of Jerusalem, right near the Jordan River, if you remember when Joshua and the Israelites cross over the Jordan into Jericho. And it was called the City of Palm Trees. It was this oasis city where Herod had a winter palace built for the nice climate. There was freshwater springs. It's kind of like Palm Springs here, right? You go in the winter to enjoy the warmth of Palm Springs. And it was a great place to encounter wealthy people and political elites. And so imagine the picture that Jesus is painting to his listeners of this place and why people would be there. And a man on his way is robbed and beaten and left for dead. And two people pass by, a priest and a Levite. And if you're like me, you might initially have wondered, what's the difference between these two? Aren't they the same offices? Well, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. And what Jesus is doing is he's going from the greater to the lesser as he's sharing the different people that encounter this man that was robbed. The priest passes first, and they held the most sacred duties before God, offering sacrifices on behalf of God's people, ministering as judges, instructing people in the law, mediating between God and man. And he passes by. Next, a Levite passes, and they had specific duties connected with the tabernacle. They cared for the courts and the chambers where the Holy of Holies was, all of the sacred furniture. They were alone and allowed to move and carry from place to place before the temple was built. And so we have these two good guys that pass by. Think about pastors. It would be like if Jason and I passed by someone in need. It wouldn't be what you would expect as pastors, right? But that's what Jesus is painting, this picture of these two surprising onlookers that pass by. And then a third person passes, a Samaritan. And in contrast to the priest and the Levite, the Samaritan would have been looked down upon by Jesus' listeners, When the Jews were brought into exile, the Assyrians left a handful of Jews to stay in the Holy Land. And the goal was to dilute the religion by having them marry their own people. And it was successful. That's where the Samaritans came from. And as those two groups intermingled, they adopted their own holy books, their own interpretations of Moses and the law. They had a new place of worship, Mount Gerizim, which would have been different from the Israelites. It's a little anachronistic, but it would be like Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses and Christians. There's overlap and there's profound differences. So that's who this Samaritan is, and he stops, and his heart breaks for this man. He cleans his wounds. He puts him on his donkey. He takes him in, and he cares for him. 
and he leaves money and promises to pay his debts. And Jesus looks at his audience and says, this man was the true neighbor. If you're like me, there are all sorts of people that drive you crazy. People that you feel justified to exclude from having the love as yourself. The neighbor with the lawn sign telling you who you have to vote for if you have a head on your shoulders. The neighbor who's always screaming at somebody in their house whenever you pass by. The neighbor that is always using foul language. The one who's always drunk or high. The one whose dog leaves presents on your property and never picks them up. Maybe just the neighbor that's not nice to you, that you go out of your way to say good morning to and they just kind of walk by and don't even glance at you. There's all sorts of people that we want to exclude from our love, markers that we want to keep them at a distance, reasons why we avoid them. And Jesus, in this story, takes all of those categories and smashes every one of them, every category. Who is one's neighbor? Who are our neighbors? Even one who is much as an enemy as a Samaritan is our neighbor. What someone believes or doesn't about God does not excuse us from loving them. Their ethnicity, their socioeconomic status, their sexual orientation, their pronoun use, their political affiliation, their religious beliefs, every way we like to divide and separate and categorize others, Jesus says has nothing to say about who our neighbors are. And maybe even more shocking and overwhelming, Jesus is saying, even the person you this morning see as your enemy is capable of being a neighbor to you. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus revolutionizes and reframes so much of the teaching of the Old Testament, right? It is written that you shall not um, commit adultery. I say, if you look lustfully at a woman, you've already committed adultery with her. But this teaching is not new. This is at the very heart of who our God is. When Israel is in rebellion against God, institutionalizing from their kings worship of false gods, sacrificing their own children, God sends them out into exile, out of the land, into enemy territory to live with them. And what does he say? A verse I found out that is dear and near and dear to your church. He says in the book of Jeremiah, seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. The word here for welfare is shalom. So God is sending his people into enemy territory and he's saying pursue holiness and wholeness at the same time, love the city, love your neighbors, show mercy, show compassion. So who are our neighbors? Anyone God places near to us. There are literal neighbors who lives on your street, in your condo, in your dorm, on the same floor in your apartment building. Who do you see that regularly drives you nuts? They are your neighbor. 
We have other neighbors as well, and those are the people that we meet nearly every day because of the routines and the habits that we have. There's a pastor in the, um, in the valley lives in Reseda called Lynn Corey. He has this nonprofit called the Neighborhood Initiative, and he's written all these books about what it means to neighbor others well. And he calls these types of moments, the people that you see every day are those special moments with random encounters. He calls them kairos moments, divine appointments. God has put you in that place and that time to be a neighbor to somebody, the checkout person at Target, the person behind or in front of you at Ralph's or at Costco, the barista at your favorite coffee shop. This is one of the stories that Jesus told us completely been saturated and absorbed into our culture, right? We have a good Samaritan law, and it speaks to helping the stranger, not our neighbor, not just the person we live next to. And so who are our neighbors? Who is Jesus calling us to love? Look around. The person even today that you see as your enemy is the neighbor God's calling you to love. That's the first thing. The next thing I want us to see is what is this passage teaching us about what neighboring actually looks like? I'm going to just really quickly look at three things the Samaritan does. The first thing the text says is that he saw the man. The Samaritan sees the man. And this is the kind of thing that we can just breeze over and keep on moving through the text. But it's crucial because I'm pretty sure the Levite and the priest saw the man as well. But there are different kinds of seeing. I tease my wife, I studied film in undergrad, and for me, to watch a movie I've never seen for the first time, it's got to be in a theater from beginning to end, no bathroom breaks. If it's at home with our four kids, it's got to be late at night, and you know, all the lights are turned down. I want to see the movie from the beginning to end on our TV, but not for my wife, Courtney. She can watch things on her iPhone, things that she's never seen before, she watches on her phone while she's working while she's sending emails, while she's folding clothes, sometimes while she's, you know, in the kitchen. I'm always like, Courtney, you're not seeing this movie or this show. It's this big. Sometimes it's subtitled. We can do this kind of thing with people. We can see and move so quickly that we forget who we've just encountered. Or we can see. We can stop. We can take in and let what we're watching or seeing wash over us. And so for the question for us citizens this morning is, how do you see people you encounter during your day? How often do you actually see them? Your neighbors. How many of your neighbors do you know by name? What they do for work? What they're struggling with? When's the last time you saw the checkout person at Target? or the person picking fruit next to you at the market, or the person pumping gas next to you at the gas station. We can all grow in this ability to see people, to pause, to take it in. I encourage you to spend time this week praying that God would give you eyes to see the people he's put before you, that you would allow for those interruptions that you would build in margin into your life to be interrupted in this way, to be drawn into somebody else's life. So the Samaritan sees, and Jesus is encouraging us to see as well. But he doesn't just see. It says he had compassion. 
What the Samaritan sees on the side of the road moves him. He puts himself in the place of this man. Now, the word compassionate is the same word used to describe Jesus' response when he goes to his best friend's tomb, Lazarus. If you remember that passage, it's the one that we've all memorized one verse in the Bible, Jesus wept, it's from that, that story. Jesus goes to this tomb and it says, this word, he had a pain in his gut, deep pain and anguish and sorrow. The cry wasn't just tears, it was an angry cry. This is not the way things are supposed to be. A deep ache. And that's the way Jesus describes the Samaritan's response to the man's suffering. Do we allow what we see to move us? Do we see our neighbors in ways that result in compassion? Do we allow the things surrounding us in Los Angeles to disturb us? In the Lord of the Rings, right, Frodo is tasked with bringing the ring of power to be destroyed on this mountain. And he's sent with his friend Samwise, his faithful friend from the Shire. And as they're making their journey, right, they encounter Gollum, a a, a hobbit that's been so disfigured by the power of the ring that he's unrecognizable. And Sam never trusts Gollum. He doesn't want to be anywhere near him. But Frodo, Frodo sees Gollum. Frodo is moved to care for Gollum despite repeated attempts that Gollum makes to hurt him. At one point, Sam is trying to convince him to leave Gollum behind, and he had only heard stories, and now he's actually encountered this character. And what does he say to Sam? Now that I see him, I pity him. We are surrounded by families in crisis in Los Angeles, by homelessness, by loneliness. Do we allow these realities to move us? Samaritan sees, he feels, but he doesn't stop there. What does it say he does? He he binds up the man's wounds. He sets him on his animal. He brings him to an inn. He pays his debt and says, whatever more you spend, let me know and I will pay you back. The Samaritan acts on his compassion, sacrificing his time, his resources, and making necessary connections to ensure that this man not only heals, but flourishes. He willingly gets involved in the life of this man, binding his wounds, putting him on his animal, taking him into an inn. The neighbor is not just one who sees, not just one who feels, but the neighbor is the one who acts. Does our compassion for those around us arouse us to action? How do we show love to others in the midst of our busy, stress-filled days, in our frustration with others, in our inclination to judge? How often do we forego acting in love towards those around us? And it could be in very small ways. My wife grew up in Oklahoma. We'll go to visit her family. And notice the first couple of times we'd go there that you know, she'd pull out of her driveway and then go all the way around this loop to, to get out onto the main road. When right behind 
Her house is another driveway. The neighbor, you could just pull in, make a K-turn, and be out in seconds. And watch her do She's like, oh, our neighbor really doesn't like people in the driveway unless they're visiting. So the first time I get in the car to drive anywhere in Oklahoma, what do I do? Pull that K-turn, get right out of there real quick. Like, we're, we're going to get to the supermarket in two minutes today. Small thing, but not being considerate, not being thoughtful, not being loving towards her neighbor. A couple of months ago, the Surgeon General released a report. The title is bleak, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. And the report is bleak because half of adults prior to the pandemic in the world were feeling, in our country, were feeling measurable levels of loneliness. And research has shown that loneliness correlates with an increased risk of heart disease, stroke, 50% increased risk of dementia for older adults. And in an interview, the Surgeon General said this, in the last few decades, we've lived through dramatic paces of change. We move more, we change jobs more often, we're living with technology that's changed how we interact with each other. People are spending less time with each other in person than two decades ago. And the report warned that the most pronounced effect was in 15 to 24-year-olds. 70% less social interaction with their friends. In a city like Los Angeles, there are many issues that are hard to impact. Poverty is very complex. Mental health issues, issues related to race. But loneliness, loneliness we can address. And this story Jesus tells encourages us to be a good neighbor. And in a time where the world has largely passed by Christianity, a post-Christian culture, the second commandment, loving our neighbors as ourselves, will profoundly impact where we live, our places of work. But we have a lot of work to do. We don't even know our neighbors' names, right, let alone what needs they have. So what are some very practical things we can do? Walk around, just start praying in your neighborhood for the people, even if you don't know who they are. Pray for opportunities to meet your neighbor. Invite people over, care for them, have meals with people. Share your own struggles with your neighbors, inviting them to share theirs. How do we become better neighbors? Well, we gaze upon the one who sees us first. Now, when I was studying this text, I realized everything that the Samaritan does in the story, we see Jesus through, throughout his whole ministry. Jesus sees. His entire ministry was marked by seeing people. Jesus and the disciples have been serving. They're tired. He wants to withdraw with them so that they can rest and he can teach them. And they get into the, uh, this boat and this whole crowd knows where they're going and ends up there when they are on the ship. And it says when he was ashore, he saw the crowd and they were like sheep without a shepherd. They end up feeding them all, right? This is when he feeds the 5,000. Then he goes off to pray. He sends the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They're on the sea and it says he saw that they were making 
headway painfully because the wind was against them. Jesus goes to the town of Nain, and there's this great crowd at the gates of the city. And what does it say? It says, he sees the widow whose son had died. He's teaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath. There's a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. Jesus sees her. His whole ministry began with seeing. And it didn't stop with the widow of Nain or with the disciples at the sea. Jesus sees you. He sees every moment of your day. The struggle to get here this morning. He sees where you're struggling with work. He sees your desires. He looks upon you. Jesus sees you. But he doesn't just see, he feels those same stories, right? When he went ashore, he saw a crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. He drew near to the gate of the town, and when the Lord saw the widow, he had compassion on her. There was a woman who had a disabling spirit. She was bent over. When Jesus saw her, he said, you're freed from your disability. And Jesus feels compassion for us. He looks upon us in our suffering. Wherever you're struggling this morning, he just doesn't just see what you're experiencing. He feels for you. The author of Hebrews says, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. Jesus feels for the way you've been hurt by friends, by family. He feels for the way you've been maybe mistreated by an employer, by somebody you care for. He feels for you and your loneliness. And he doesn't only feel, Jesus acts. When he saw the crowd, he began to teach them many things. He comes to the disciples on the sea, right? And he calms the waters. He goes to the town of Nain, and when he had, when he sees her, it says, your son is alive. He raises the widow's son to life. The woman in the synagogue is healed after suffering for 18 years. And Jesus acts on our behalf, too. I realize, you know, he's telling this story. The Samaritan would have been seen as the enemy to his audience. The enemy who sees and feels and acts. The enemy shows mercy. By the time Jesus will go to his death, he's going to be seen as the enemy of the very people he came to save. The Son of God in the flesh is going to be seen as the enemy of the ones he came to love. It was read over us this morning, he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. While we were his enemies, Jesus took on our sin and died for us. He sees you in your struggles. He sees us pursuing meaning in our work or in our relationships, and he loves us. 
He loves us so much that he goes to the cross, suffering in our place as an enemy of God so that we could be welcomed in as his children, adopted, righteous. We're filled with the spirit that raised him from the dead and nothing, nothing can separate us from his love. And that means there's nothing we need. He will provide every need for us. And even right now, he's praying for us, interceding for us, praying perfect prayers on our behalf, knowing what we need. And because all of that is true, it means that there is no end to what he can do in and through us. A man named Charlie Roberts lost his daughter in 1997. She was very young. I remember in seminary, my history professor said to lose a child is such a profound form of suffering that we have refused to give a name to it. Right? We have a name for losing our parents. We have a name for losing our spouse. We don't have a name for losing a child. Charlie never recovered from losing his daughter. For nine years, he mourned her death, so much so that he could never forgive God for taking her away from him. In October of 2006, he entered a school in Pennsylvania, an Amish school, and shot 10 girls while they were in their classes and then took his own life. His mom was riding home and she hears on the radio that there had been a shooting at the local schoolhouse. By the time I went to my son's home, I saw my husband and the trooper standing there as I pulled in and I looked at my husband and he said it was Charlie. I'll never be able to face my neighbors again. In the midst of their grief over the loss, the Amish community didn't cast blame. They didn't point fingers. They didn't hold a press conference with attorneys. Instead, they reached out with grace towards the killer's family. The afternoon of the shooting, the grandfather of one of the girls who was killed expressed forgiveness towards Charles Roberts. And that same day, their neighbors visited the family to comfort them in their sorrow and pain. His mom said, there aren't words to describe how that made us feel. For the mom and dad who had just lost not one but two daughters at the hands of our son to greet us. Is there anything in this life we shouldn't forgive? At his funeral, there were more Amish mourners than none. His mom, Terry, now cares for one of the girls that survived. And one day, you know, a couple of years ago, while she was caring for this um, young girl, the father came and said, none of us would have chosen this, but the relationships we've built, you can't put a price on that. This is supernatural. We can't love and forgive and care for neighbors like this without the Spirit working in and through us. But it's also who our God is. While we were his enemies, Christ came and died for us. And we are called to love our neighbors 
knowing that the way that it transformed this family is the way that it will transform both us and the people that God has put before us. Would you know this morning that you are seen by our Lord, that he loves you and that he acted on your behalf so that you would have the freedom to love others? Let's pray. you take a moment, maybe ask God to put one person on your heart this morning that you could move towards in relationship. One person called to Christ leads to another person leads to another person. Father, we thank you for loving us so much that even when we hated you, you sent your son to die in our place. Thank you for sending Jesus who shows us mercy, who loves us despite our sin. Thank you for calling us your own. Thank you for making us your sons and daughters. Would we more deeply know this morning the great love you have for us and would that send us out with security, with joy, to love those you've put before us? We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.